to uh, Exodus chapter 1. Um, I mean, Exodus chapter 3, sorry. Um, I was trying to make this thing record. Uh, Exodus chapter 3, uh, we are now, uh, this is week 3 in our series into Exodus. So far, uh, we, we covered Exodus 1 in one sermon, Exodus 2 in one sermon. Today, uh, we are actually covering um, chapter 3 into chapter 4. Uh, I am, I am, um, at least right now, I plan on reading the whole passage. Um, that's a lot, uh, but because it's a lot, I, I won't ask you to stand. It's our normal practice to stand when we read God's Word, but um, there are times when we'll stand for one reading and not for another. Um, and, and when you're reading, when you're working through Old Testament narratives, you get big chunks like this. And uh, that doesn't lend itself to standing for a long time and reading long passages. So, uh, if you will, Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, uh, down through 17, verse 17 of chapter 4. Hear God's word. Uh, now Moses was keeping uh, the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And then he came uh, and then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to that land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name 
forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the, children, the elders of Israel will go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt and, will, and with all uh, the wonders that I do, will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry, for fine, for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. And then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord didn't appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. Smart Moses. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said. Or listen to the first sign that they may believe they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord 
stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, Oh, Holy Spirit, you are the one who inspired these words. The New Testament writers tell us over and over again that these are your very words. Uh, That holy men were uh, carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. Uh, You have kept and preserved these words for us. And now we come asking for you to help us to hear, to understand, to believe, and to be changed. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to think for a second about the thing that scares you the most. Like, what are you most afraid of? Now, I don't mean snakes and spiders. Because snakes, let's just... Snakes should be at the top of the list. Um, I don't mean snakes and spiders. I'm like, what is that thing out there in front of you? What is that thing in your life? What is that thing about you that, that makes you most afraid or most nervous or most concerned? Or maybe to ask it another way, what is, what is your greatest need or, or what do you think your greatest need is. If I just had blank, then everything would be fine. If I just had or didn't have, if I had this or if I didn't have that, then everything would be just fine. See, this passage actually will address those needs. This, these chapters address those things which we think we need more than anything else. Now, this, you should have an outline in your bulletin. We've gotten away from that, from that for a while. Uh, but the, this whole passage, really, the structure, the frame of the passage is given by a series of questions. Uh, the first one is, is, what is that? Okay, I'm, I'm technically cheating a little bit because that's what Moses means when he says, you know, hey, there's a, a bush on fire. I need to go see what that is. What he means is, what on earth is that? Because he sees this bush. He's out with the sheep. He's, he's 40 years a, a shepherd now in, in, with his father-in-law's flock. He's out on Mount Horeb, which we will find is Mount Sinai. That comes up later uh, in the book of Exodus. And he sees this strange... We can all agree this is strange, right? Fires need fuel. Fire has to sort of feed off of something. And and normally the bush is that for fire. And yet this bush is somehow on fire, but not actually burning. This is one of those things, by the way, that we say and we think we know about the Bible or we say we know about the Bible. We all agree, you know, Moses and the burning bush, except technically the bush isn't burning. Somehow or another, it's on fire, but it's not being burned up. It's not being consumed. Uh, so we're, we're thankful even for Jesus. You noticed in our Old Testament, in our New Testament reading just a few minutes ago, when Jesus said, you know, Moses talked about this in that passage about the burning bush. When he talked about the burning bush, it's burning, but it's not actually technically burning. 
So how is it that 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 that's what Moses finds in the desert? Well, a quick survey of the Old Testament will remind us that fire is almost always a a representation of God's presence with his people. We we saw it in Genesis 15 with Abraham. God entered entered into uh, that covenant with Abraham and and as they cut the animals and separated the animals um and separated the, the halves of the animals with this bloody gory gutsy pathway to walk between if you remember Abraham didn't walk through those parts Abraham wasn't didn't join God in in making that covenant God alone the smoking fire pot, um, um, just a, a bowl of fire passing through those pieces. God was taking on the responsibility and the consequences of that covenant onto himself. We'll see it in the tabernacle and the temple later when um, the, the fire represents. And then as as the people of Israel are, are traveling through the wilderness, fire this pillar of fire is God guiding, leading the Israelites through the wilderness. The bush isn't burning because this isn't normal fire. The bush isn't burning because this is actually God showing up to meet with Moses. In fact, the earth becomes holy. He tells Moses, take your sandals off of your feet because you're now standing on holy ground. What makes ground holy? Do you remember Genesis 3? Do you remember the, the, the consequences, the effect of the fall of the introduction of sin into God's perfect, very good creation? God pronounces a curse on the serpent and then to Eve. And then to Adam, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. There's almost this sense in which Moses has been walking around on cursed ground his whole life with those sandals on. And God wouldn't allow the, the, the effects of that curse in his presence. You leave the shoes over there. They don't come onto holy ground. Where God is, is holy and so these cursed ground walking shoes that Moses has been wearing or not wearing are not allowed on God's sanctified earth. That's quite possibly why the priest is barefoot when he's performing his function as a priest in the Holy of Holies. His shoes have been in contact with Cursed earth all day. And so now he's walking into the presence of God. Kind of makes you wonder, should we not be taking our shoes off when we walk into this building? You do realize the building itself isn't holy. What what makes this place holy isn't that there's a building here. There's nothing special or fancy about the building. It's what happens here because... What we do when we gather as God's people in God's presence, we're actually meeting with 
the God of heaven and earth. We are standing on holy ground. I've smelled some of your feet. Don't take off your shoes. But that it makes you wonder. It makes you think. It makes you realize that's exactly what we're doing here. This space, this place is holy. Not because there's anything fancy about the building. But because there's everything fancy about the one with whom we meet in this building. And what we find is that God has come down to meet with Moses. Would you, would you look back at the last two verses of chapter 2? We kind of made a big deal about this. This, I think, I think Exodus 2 is one of the greatest chapter endings in the whole Bible. I love these two verses. Because notice repetitive over and over again. The last two verses of chapter 2. God heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. And chapter 3, God has come. He's heard. He's remembered, he's seen, he's known, and now I told you, I told you to pay attention that whenever we read that God remembered, it's not the same thing as me leaving the house this morning and forgetting these. See, I can't, I can't read the Bible without these. That, that, you, a couple of years ago, I literally went to bed one night, fine, woke up the next morning, and these words were not words anymore. See, we walk out of the house and we forget things. We, oh, that's right. I meant to turn off the sink. I meant to make sure the stove was off. I meant to grab my glasses when I left the house. Some of you are now scared your stove is on. Sorry. God doesn't forget. Every time the Bible tells us that God remembered something's about to happen, the very next passage, God's doing something about that which he has remembered. Now we could make all kinds of applications already about God initiating his relationship with Moses, not the other way around. Moses didn't find God. God came and found him. God is the initiator in the relationship. We could make all kinds of applications about God coming down to earth rather than Moses going to God. But that seems sufficient for now. Just to point you down those roads. Moses asks, what is that? Well, it's a bush on fire that's not really on fire. Because it's not really normal fire. It's God's presence. God has come down to earth to meet with Moses, to call him and to commission him to deliver his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. Now, Moses has a reaction. Moses has a response. It's almost like he uh, kind of had this ready. And it, on the surface, it sounds like a legitimate response. However, I'm not so convinced. Moses responds with a question. I told you, this, it's all questions. This whole chapter is organized around a series of questions. What is that? And then Moses, after meeting with God in the bush, says, who am I? Did you notice his response in verses 10 and 11? 
Moses, verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? It sounds like a question of humility. And, and we all have doubts and, and at some level probably should have doubts. We probably should have some amount of I don't know that I'm the one for this. There, there should be some level of, of, of question and, and humility that drives us to ask people, are you sure? I mean, fill out a nomination form out here and, and have a conversation with somebody. Hey, I'm going to nominate you to be an elder or a deacon. And, and you kind of expect their response to be, are you sure? There's a, a right level of humility there. But I don't think that's what's going on with Moses. Because everything he says in this chapter that isn't a short, direct answer to a question is an objection. He doesn't say anything more than what's that, a staff, and complain. The entire rest of the passage. You see in verse 13. Let me just sort of walk you through a couple of these. Moses said to God. Well let's just say I do this. Who am I going to tell him sent me? And there's this. There's this. I don't know. I mean I got to. I got to have some sort of answer. And I don't know who you are. And they might not know who you are. And so what exactly Am I going to tell them? For that matter, I don't talk good. And you can tell that already, God, because we have been talking for a few minutes now already. And it's clear, even in this short conversation, I don't talk good. He has a speech issue of some sort. He's trying to argue that he is clearly not the one to go to Pharaoh or to deliver the Israelites. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, um, God, you're wrong. They won't listen to me. You don't know what you're talking about. Look at verse 10. Finally, Moses says, um, wrong. I'm not eloquent. Here's the, the part I can't speak. You've got the wrong guy. Over and over again in this passage, the only thing Moses knows how to say is, God, I don't believe you. And for that matter, nobody else will either. Everything he says is an objection. You're reminded of Isaiah, right? Isaiah 6, here I am, Lord, send me. And in Exodus 3, you get here I am, Lord, surely you can find somebody else. Here I am, Lord, send anybody but me. I am not your guy. What is that? Who am I? That One of Moses' objections is another question, right? I mean, they're going to say to me, who are you to come in here and lead us out of Israel? Out of Egypt. To take these Israelites out of... You know, there are some great answers to the who are you question. 
right? Inigo Montoya asks the man in black, who are you? No one of consequence. No one to be trifled with. The famous Michael Keaton, I'm Batman. See, Moses knows he's going to walk into Israel and they're going to say, not just who sent you, but they're going to say, who are you? you? You do remember the last time, I mean, into Egypt. You do remember the last time he was in Egypt, right? Let's see. Um, he murdered an Egyptian. Word got out. And so even his own people had decided, we don't trust you. And now Pharaoh, his adopted grandfather, wants to kill him again for killing an Egyptian. He's persona non grata in Egypt. I mean, you can't walk into Pharaoh and go, hey, Pharaoh, I'm back. And by the way, I'm going to take these Israelites with me when I leave again. Because the last time you were there, Pharaoh wanted you dead. And your own people didn't even trust you. They didn't believe you anyway. That's why he ran to Midian. So the reality is Moses knows that he's going to go back to people who want no part of him, who don't want anything to do with him. And they're telling him, you have no right to come and lead us out. Moses wants an answer. What am I going to tell them? How am I going to answer them? How am I going to answer their objections to me and to you? You know, that's a, to a certain extent, that's a reasonable question. Unless we're using it to dismiss God's clearly revealed will. See, Moses has very clear direction and instruction from God himself. He has God's clearly revealed will. And every question he asks is a way to say, but I don't really want to do that. I don't really like that. I don't really want any part of that. I don't really believe that. The people around me aren't going to believe that. Moses is looking for a way to dismiss God's clearly revealed will. So much so that he twice basically tells God, you are wrong. They won't listen to me. You've got the wrong guy. Send somebody else. We would never do that, right? We, we would never actually look God in the eye and say, you're wrong. Except at some level, we do that every time we sin. Isn't that what sin is? Looking God in the eye and going, you know, I know, I know you're the creator and sustainer of everything. I know that you are the king and head of the church. I know that you're king and head of the universe. But... I don't really like your edicts. I don't really like your commands. 
So I'm going to take over. Okay, we don't, I assume we don't have that long conversation in our heads every time we sin. But that's what we're doing. That's why we say sin is cosmic treason. We literally are committing treason against the one true king of the entire cosmos. The audacity we have to look at God and say, you know what? You're wrong. And I'm right. What is that? Who am I? Who are you? I don't know if you noticed this or not. Um, I probably could have done a better job of calling attention to it as we were reading the passage. But every single one of Moses' objections is given the exact same response. But I. Literally, every single time, every single thing he says, God's response is, I. Moses says, God, look at me. I'm not the guy. God says, I, not you. And so the question is, who exactly is I? You see back in verses 2 and 4. Notice, first of all, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses uh, in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, there it is. And he's, I got to go see that in verse 4. The Lord saw that he turned aside to see. Did you notice the change? Did you, did you notice the subject of the sentence changed? In verse 2, the bush is the angel of the Lord. In verse 4, it's the Lord himself. The, the, the passage makes a distinction without making a distinction. The passage separates... And yet unites. Because clearly the, the Lord and the angel of the Lord are the same. And yet clearly in the passage they're different. How does that work? Like, what do I do with that? And all of a sudden you're reminded of John 1. Because in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. How can the Word be with God? Distinction. And God. Not a distinction. And, and you've, you're getting a, a glimpse of the Trinity. That, that's why a lot of people will argue that these are Old Testament sort of um, personifications of the, the second person of the Trinity pre-incarnate before taking on flesh. So who is I? Well, I is the angel of the Lord. And yet it is also the Lord. The passage tells us that it's both, but that really that they're the same and that they're one. And yet they're both. You can work on that this afternoon. But that's not the only place where we learn about God speaking in the bush, because you notice in verse 13, there's a there's an actual question. Who are you? And so in verse 13, Moses says to God, if I go to these people, who am I going to tell them sent me? That's his, he's literally asking, who are you? And you get in verses 14 and 15, actually a, a multi-part answer. It's not quite so simple. 
He says, I, I am who I am. It's a verb. There's, there's no actual subject in Hebrew. You don't need that stuff in a lot of other languages. You don't need a subject. The verb contains the subject or implies the subject or makes the subject clear. You can, you can say I am by just saying am because the I is, is in the am. We don't do that. That doesn't sound like normal English. Suddenly, God's name is a verb. Am. Or maybe will be. Because they are essentially the same. And you notice in most of your English versions, and this is, this is my drum. I beat my drum every time I have a chance. You're going to hear this. Um, which it could get old in a, in a long sermon series like Exodus. Um, you'll notice the word Lord is printed in small caps or all caps, depending on which version you have. That's the English translator's way of telling you it's the word Yahweh. It's that, that covenant name of God. In, in Hebrew, it's four vowels, Y-H-W-H. God doesn't stop there. His name isn't simply I am, or I even I am who I am. And it's not even I am has sent me to you. He goes beyond that because then he adds this covenant relationship. I'm the God of your fathers. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And that kind of gets difficult to read out loud multiple times in a chapter like we just did. And you're reminded that this is covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of heaven and earth, but in a particular and special way to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to their descendants. Who is I? You, you, you keep saying, Moses, essentially looking at the bush, you keep saying I. Who is I? Well, I is... The angel of the Lord. I is, humor me on the verb. I know that sounds weird. I is the angel of the Lord. I is the Lord himself. I is, I am. I is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the more complete name. It's that, that reminder of his covenant with, with the people of Israel, with their forefathers. Now, my plan is to come back next week and dig more deeply into that. So we'll save that for next week. I simply want you to get the, the bigger picture of Exodus 3 and 4. Who is the I? Well, it's the covenant-making, covenant-remembering, covenant-keeping, now covenant-enacting God of Israel. How do you know? What's the evidence? What, what proof is there that God is going to do all that he says he's going to do in this chapter? There's a great scene in The Lion, the Wish, and the Wardrobe. It's in the movie and it's in the book. Edmund has been freed from his death sentence to the White Witch. Aslan and the White Witch have had their conversation. And in the movie, 
the white witch is standing in her sledge, in her sleigh thing. And she asks, how do I know you're going to do what you say? Well, at the, in the book, at the end of the chapter, the deep magic from the dawn of time, it's at the very end, the very close of the chapter. How do I know you're going to keep your end of the bargain? And then the, Aslan roars. He just roars. And in the movie, she, she sits in her seat. It's like she's knocked down into her seat. In the book, she gathers up her skirts and fairly runs away. See, the, the point is that for Aslan, the only evidence you need that he's going to carry out his promises is himself. The answer to the question, how do I know? is for Aslan to roar. How do I know, God, that you're going to do this? God, in essence, in this chapter, roars. He answers with, I am. And I think, I think Lewis was trying to capture this. I think this is exactly what Lewis wanted to catch both in the book, well, in the book, which then became the movie. Now, whether they knew what they were doing or not, I'm not sure. Because God answers every single objection with, I am. God, I don't, I don't speak well. I make mouths. I make ears that hear the words that come out of mouths. I will be with your mouth. I don't know who am I to, I am. You want me to walk into, I will make Pharaoh. Literally every single objection is, Moses, quit looking at you. Look at me. See, the reality is, we think that our greatest fears, our greatest needs, that the only solution is, I've got to look down inside of myself and find just a little more strength, just a little more confidence, just a little more hope, just a little more of this, just a little more of that. And every single time God says, stop it. Don't look at you. You are not your answer. I am. God looks at you and says, I am. And in fact, he gives Moses countless signs. Hey, what are you holding in your hand? That's a staff. Throw it down. Staff becomes a snake. Moses, wisely, runs away. Have you noticed I'm not a big fan of snakes? You know, we, don't, we, don't, we got this? Okay. Pick it back up. I'd have been really, I think at that point, I'd have been like, I know you got the wrong guy now. It becomes a staff. Put your hand in your cloak. The word isn't cloak. The word is bosom. You, you can't, you, you know you can't physically put your hand in your chest. So that, that's as close as it gets, right? You, you put it in. But there's, I think, an intent there. If you were to reach inside yourself, you only find leprosy. You find uncleanness. But if you look to me, put it back. Pull it back out again. There's the hand. Normal. You know, he's giving you signs. That's what this table is. 
the bread, the cup, it's a sign. When you look at God and say, how do I know you will deliver me from sin? How do I know you're going to keep your promises? How do I know I will see eternity? How do I know that you love me? There's the table. There's the sign. I've given you my son. Killed him. Because I love you. That's all the sign you need. We have two. Baptism, Lord's Supper. Moses had more than two in this passage alone. And he still wouldn't believe. What's your greatest need? What's your greatest fear? What is that thing that you think, if I only have this, or if I only didn't have this any longer, if I didn't have to put up with whatever, This passage says, in reality, your greatest need is not to be freed from this or that. And it's not to have this or that. It's God. It's God himself. In the face of his power and his love for us, there's absolutely nothing to fear. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your presence, that you have come down to us, that you've condescended to be with your people, to, uh, to meet with us, to call us, to be your own. You've promised your presence with us, just as you did with Moses. We pray that we would look more and more to you, that we wouldn't look to ourselves. We wouldn't look to our own strength and guilt, I mean, strength and ability and power to free ourselves, to deliver ourselves. We would instead look to you. And we pray that this meal we come to in just a few minutes will drive us all over again to your promised presence and your guaranteed power and love for us. We pray all of this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.